I am Dave Kittredge, filmmaker in Los Angeles, and this is The Outcast, presented by Outfest, where we have conversations with LGBT creators and allies to discuss their work, their inspirations, their passions, and the challenges of getting our authentic voices heard. And today I'm talking with an acclaimed American independent filmmaker with a truly authentic voice. He has written, directed, edited, and scored three award-winning feature films, and there are others that he's written or edited or scored or appeared in, and he's an accomplished and prolific musician with several albums under his belt, including Everything is Pop and my favorite, Nomad. And in 2019, when the LA Times listed the 25 best Asian American films of the past 20 years, Colma the Musical, which he wrote, acted in, and composed the music for, was on it, and two of his three features were runners up on the list. And he's really also one of my favorite people on this earth. H.P. Mendoza, welcome to The Outcast. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me on the show. So you and I first met in 2009 when your first feature, Fruit Fly, and my first feature were running around the LGBT film festival circuit together. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. Is it, 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 it simultaneously feels like yesterday and a damn and era a ago. million fucking years ago but yeah oh good i was about to ask you if i could oh, we swear, can curse so you... oh please just light it up it's all oh, good good i just unzipped and one of the <laughs> one of the things that was so refreshing um because when i was going around the film festival circuit with my movie and you've seen it it's very it's not one might say a traditional lgbt film festival movie really um it was really <laughs> lovely hanging with you because fruit fly is really unconventional as well yeah um it's really interesting like because I, I feel like people often talk to me about what an unconventional lgbt film is and i kind of feel like we should just squash that narrative i feel like we should talk about what lgbt films can be because i just kind of feel like when people talk about what you know, a conventional LGBT film is, they're just kind of describing straight films with gay people in them, you know? Um, and I, you know what I mean? It's just like, okay. Slightly so you, more nudity, yeah. Right. So, okay, you have your nude version of ordinary people. <laughs> Pornography spoke to me because, I mean, you know, aside from me just being a lover of cinema uh, that does break with conventional structure, I think that Pornography, a Thriller, and Fruit Fly were kind of sisters on the festival circuit because... I, I do too. They both did sort of leave people with a, huh... <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, well, but I think the, my favorite one of my favorite things about your movie was the ending, which was very like. But and by the way, if you haven't seen Fruit Fly, it's like it's one of these movies that kind of took the festival world by storm. It has a cult following. I mean, there are people who really like follow this movie and love this movie in, in a really lovely way. And I, I'm waiting for it to get that kind of you know, mainstream attention. Yeah, you know, I think the closest we're going to get to mainstream attention just passed this May. You know, like we had the 10th anniversary sing-along. Um, <laughs> Which was so much fun. Thank you. I thought, oh, I saw you posted that picture of uh, you, you watching it on the screen. That was so cool. That was, oh, uh, it was basically what happened because of the pandemic was... Um, Camfest, yeah. Yeah, Camfest. And what they did for closing night, because it was all virtual, was, you know, HP basically rendered out a new version of Fruit Fly, which is a musical, uh, but put in subtitles or actually not even subtitles they were like graphics that were interactive with the picture so it wasn't just like this thing at the bottom it was like the words were jumping around and 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 reacting uh and it was just a delightful experience we'd, we'd been planning this 10-year anniversary for a while imagine if we showed it in the park uh mm. on, on a big screen but on two screens because i had this super ambitious idea <laughs> that, that i would actually wait you were super ambitious you you <laughs> 
We Look, haven't even I, gotten into all the stuff that you do. I, I, I kind of like, and speaking on behalf of other like independent filmmakers, how on earth do you do all of this stuff? I mean, your your output is is almost uh, supernatural and obsessive. It's uh, I think you I think you have to uh, you have to embrace the fact that you suck at a lot of other things in life. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I have to be, you know, the Lord giveth and he taketh. Well, you do not suck at any of this stuff. But what I wanted to say, like, running around 2009 when when we met, I think I was very naive when I made my movie. And I kind of went into it. And I figured that I was like, okay, I'm in this thing. It took two years to make. It took everything out of me. And I'm going to run around the festival circuit. I'm going to meet other filmmakers who are, you know, my tribe. You know, they're, they're going to be pushing the boundaries. They're going to be pushing the limits. They're going to be doing stuff. And the thing for me was... I didn't really meet a lot of filmmakers who were interested in pushing the boundaries at that time, which was a bummer. Um, I didn't meet a lot of filmmakers who were really interested in the technical stuff, like the mm-hmm. how you can make an independent film and what you need to know to make it look and sound amazing and the tricks that you can pull. Uh, but you were the bright light of that because you were as much of a tech nerd and a cinephile as I was. And, you know, I saw you and like we immediately bonded. Well, I do think so. That's interesting, right? Because I do feel like you will in the film festival circuit when you meet other indie filmmakers. I mean, like truly indie, right? I'm not talking like Fox Searchlight. I'm talking independent, you know? <laughs> yes. Like, you know, like we pay rent. Yeah. <laughs> like when well, you and I other... want to get to that, too, because like living as an independent filmmaker without a trust fund is a very challenging thing. And a real thing, but rare. Yes. Uh, <laughs> I, I think so. To your point, you said you were naive. I mean, yeah, like we should be naive when we direct our first feature. I do feel like I meet a lot of people who are making independent film who are embarrassed how, how, by how naive they were when they made their first feature, where they kind of either want to bury it or they never release it. You know, I've met lots of oh, that's people a tragedy. who have... It is a tragedy. It's like, you know what, this is, your, this is your report card, man. Like, just like, whatever, let it be what it is. Yeah. I watch Fruit Fly. For, for the record, I was, you know, I was hesitant when I found out there was going to be a 10th anniversary screening, but... Why? Um, Oh, because it was my first, and you know, it's uh, it's, it's lovely. Your... It's a lovely movie. I I I I I knew that then, and I know that now. And there was a lot of time in between when I went through all the trials and tribulations of being a super broke independent filmmaker who thought that I, all my output was crap. And when we screened it this last time, I did see a film that I loved, and I know I would have directed it differently if I did it now. And that's okay. Like that's yeah, it's part a given, of the... though. Yeah, that's part of your canon. You have to embrace your canon. You can, I, do, I do think a lot, I meet a lot of independent filmmakers who want to be known for making only great works, you know? And, I mean, w- what a luxury that would be, right, if we could all do that. But I don't want to delete anything from my history, you know, because I do feel like I watch Fruit Fly, and again, even if I would have directed it differently now, I still see that film and I see how it led to the other things I've done. I can track like my touch points, my like where I was in my life, where we were as a country, and you know, it's, right. like the fruit fly was happening around Prop Eight. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So of course, I wrote that song. We're gonna live life undenied until the happy end. <laughs> it's just a simple <laughs> lyric, you know. But it, I probably wouldn't have written that if it weren't for Prop Eight. So that film for me stands for what happened in two thousand nine, two thousand ten. I think that's a real thing, though, when you're talking about like you know that that illusion that a lot of artists that are up and coming have about like it has to be great Mm -hmm. whenever i hear anybody like kind of get impeded by no i can't do it because it's not going to be fantastic or perfect fear and desire Mm. fear and desire was stanley kubrick's first film it is atrocious 
I've never seen it. It's awful. It's so bad. Uh, it's so bad that he tried to get all the prints and like buy back the rights, and and it didn't. <laughs> he did, and it didn't really work because I think Kino Lorber like released a Blu-ray at some point uh, of it, um, and it's just not good at all. But you know, the guy is Stanley Kubrick. It's like you know, what are you gonna say? He's not a good filmmaker. It's like you know, no, he just had early work that wasn't. Right. As good. I, I have heard, I've, I've read some things that say if you watch Fear and Desire that you'll see how the themes and just certain motifs in it oh, do yeah. track throughout his career. So that yep. makes me curious. However, even that being the most glowing review I've read. And if, if, the, if the headline of that review is, it ain't that bad, it's not really <laughs> drawing me toward the Kino Lorber Blu-ray, you know? But I am curious. I want to see exactly what's in it that you can track through Spartacus, through 2001. Like, yeah. I'm curious. But I mean, and on the other side, you have the filmmakers who basically start real strong with like masterpieces and then their their subsequent output goes down and down and down and down and down. And it's like, you know, what happened to that guy who made, you know... Well, if we want to talk about an independent filmmaker who spent an independent amount of money for what's considered a masterpiece, look at Orson Welles. Yeah. I mean... Yeah. You know, look, I love, I love most of the stuff he's done after most. You know, um, but... You know, he, he he lived in the shadow of Citizen Kane forever. You know, even the magnificent. Yeah. I know you're an Ambersons fan too, right? I like Ambersons, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't I, I don't dote on it the way that I dote on Citizen Kane. I'm I, I'm a hopeless film school nerd when it comes to Citizen Kane. It's like it's yeah, like one so of those I. movies. Yeah, I know we we we've traded gifts in the past. I remember, but <laughs> like it's like one of those movies. They say it's like the greatest movie ever made, and it's like you know you're like okay, fine, I'll watch it. But it's so good. It's yeah. just so damn good. Every goddamn frame of that fucking movie is like, it's just a work of art. And I can't even, I can't even resentfully bring it down and be like, oh, it's overrated. No, it's not overrated. It's it really, really that good. Isn't. No. You know what I, I try to get across to people is the idea that it might be a fun movie if you give it a shot. You know, like I think a lot of people have this idea that because people see it on the list of like top 10 movies of all time, it must be spinach. And I'm like... By the way, it's also one of the most deliciously bitchy and quotable films. It is. You know? Pauline like a- Kale said that. Pauline Kale actually said it was, she basically said this might be the most fun, quote unquote, great movie ever made. I right? believe that was her. I, ho- I hope I'm not misquoting, but I think that she said that. Yeah. Because it is fun. It's I mean, so I, fun. I quote it sometimes as retorts, <laughs> you know? <laughs> But I, I I do think it's interesting how there are a lot because of things like Citizen Kane, you have people who want their Citizen Kane and they don't yeah. recognize they don't even know what they're saying when they say that because I'm like, do you want that? Do you really want the life Orson Welles had after Citizen Kane? Do you want to have your Well other he was his own worst enemy for sure. I mean how how long was he trying to make right. Othello? Or or is it uh it was the one that he was shooting over like ten years. Not not Othello. other side of the wind. It was Othello. It was Othello. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, other side of wins a different story, but like, uh, like Othello. Yeah, yeah. Um, ha- have you seen the various restorations of it? No, I haven't. Interestingly, the only way I was able to watch Othello was when they restored it in '92, and the restoration process itself kept kept me from enjoying it. <laughs> it was rescored. Oh. I don't know. I just have this thing. I'm, a, you know, I'm, a, I'm a big audio guy. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm yes. a huge like audio nerd, and which is why I can't wait to release my remix of Citizen Kane. Um, Wait, but, what? Uh, oh, yeah, I'm making a 5.1 mix, and it's not for purists. Oh, yes! You told me about this! Yes! Oh, yeah, no, I've been working on it for years. Yeah. Because oh, it, it's my free time project. It. It's my free time project. <laughs> um, HP, wait a second. Yes, I have free time. Okay, okay. How does this happen? <laughs> how do you do this? It's infuriating! <laughs> I literally don't know how you do this. Introversion helps. <laughs> Interestingly, I party a lot. 
<laughs> and I throw a lot of parties with tons of people also, but I am, I am a textbook introvert. I really am. And you're up in San Francisco. You're not in L.A. Right. What's the What's the San Francisco film kind of scene like? As I mean, L.A. is you know, of course, L.A. Yeah. So that's the thing, right? Like, like if you say L.A. is of course L.A., everyone knows what that means. But when you say San Francisco scene, there's at least twelve different definitions for that. You know, like you have, um, you know, of course, you have the folks who um, think of San Francisco as like the documentarians' city. You know, oh yeah. Um, but then you have folks like the SF Film Society who rebranded another. They're called SF Film, not to be confused with Film SF, who gave us those amazing rebates to make Bitter Melon. Um, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> plug. Uh, you gotta make you gotta make sure everybody everybody gets a, a shout out. I I, I do think that um, it's it's a little hard to think of SF as having a film community when everyone is constantly trying to get to LA. You know, um, mm. or New well, York. LA has a lot of different film communities as well I, sh- I should you know point oh, out for sure i mean there's so many different pockets of creative people doing stuff here um and especially in in you know we're recording this in july of 2020 so the pandemic is everywhere and everything is kind of stopped but kind of not stopped because we're still having all these zoom meetings we're still developing all this stuff and we're, scripts are still getting sold and everyone's prepping for that moment where we're finally going to be able to do something that's yeah. not you know animation or editing a documentary or something like that or some clever take on the zoom comedy yeah there's gonna be a lot of it's gonna be like the blair witch of the next decade it's like we're gonna see a lot of zoom comedies or found footage horror through i think there are people listening to this uh if if they got through all of our film nerditry which is probably going to be throughout this episode um (laughs) who are independent filmmakers who are looking at 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 how to make movies and how to kind of get by as an independent filmmaker you know, basically, if you don't have a trust fund, if you don't have money, if you don't have parents that are well-connected or powerful, if you actually have to make a living and pay rent, you know, it's very difficult to make a film, even if you get it paid for by someone else, just because it takes so much time and effort. And yet, it still happens. I did it. You did it. A lot of people do it. But, you know, I want to talk about, like, because you, know, you and I are in the same boat on this, like, what's it like to have a day job as a creative and a job as a filmmaker also as a creative. I think the key is to make sure your day job's creative. You know, it's, uh, I, I, I think. I'd agree. I'd you know agree. what I mean? Yeah. A, a, a side note, I spent so many years in clothing retail. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, you know, I, uh, I used to work at a little store called Ingenious right across the street from the Castro Theater. Ooh. Basically, I had a manager who was like this is this total racist asshole who would call me Lotus Blossom? That's gross. Well, you know, I, when when you're like 19, like like I was I was really young and like I was just, he a gay guy? He was gay. You know, it was, it was, this is the Castro gay 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 He's white a gay white guy gay white dude uh, uh, who on behalf of gay white no I don't actually want to talk about it on behalf of gay guys. I'm not even going to apologize. <laughs> no, guy's please, an asshole, you don't. You should not speak no, for this dude. I do not want to. I do not want to speak for gay white. He, guys. he just had this way of kind of belittling all of the employees, and there I was, kind of stuck in clothing retail for a while, but still talking about the scripts that I was working on. And I had this one really close coworker named Wick. He he was so sweet. I'll never forget. I thought we were alone on the sales floor. He was like, you know, I I I read that little bit that you did. I really think this would make a great movie. You should really f- pursue this dream. And I'm like, yeah. Can you imagine, like, if like having a movie, a movie of mine, just play in a movie theater, or even like across the street at the Castro Theater? And my manager was behind me the whole time, didn't even know. And um, he was like, ah, I'm sorry, Rotos Brossom's going to make a movie that plays at the Castro, haha, <laughs> in your dreams. And he just hands me some more work to do. And fuck that guy. Uh, well, fast forward to. Uh, <laughs> 
Oh, man. Oh, no. Please tell me he was in line to see Fruit Fly. That well, 2010 of- rolls around, and it's a theatrical release. And of course, we're playing at the Castro, and I get I get a call from Keith at the Castro saying, "Hey, could you can you come by and just like you know just you know me and Jeff Root were talking about like maybe you know doing a tech check, and you know we're we're actually putting all the information on the marquee right now. Um, if you could okay what's on the marquee, and also you know if you want to do a, a sound check, I'm like absolutely. So I'm walking. And I decided to take the side where the store is on, and he's still working there, my old manager. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's standing outside, he's smoking a cigarette, and he's staring at the marquee, and they're putting up the A of H.P. Mendoza, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I was like, man, I, I feel like Muriel and Muriel's wedding right now. This, this is amazing. I feel So I had to. I'm like, hey, how's it going? And he took a look at me, and he looked at the marquee. He put out his cigarette and he didn't say a word. He just walked away. Karma's a bitch, racist white guy. <laughs> oh, I should have asked the caster to say fruit fly by Lotus Blossom. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that was so, a tangent. Sorry. Where, 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 where? No, I think, I think this is, it, it's going to be a series of tangents today. No, sorry. So one of the things that we bonded over and one of the things that I think is so interesting about your work is that you are not just a cinephile, but you are a cinetech nerd, <laughs> which means like basically that it wasn't just that during the digital revolution, you were obsessively checking like, you know, cameras and dynamic range and resolution as I was like, right. you know, oh, that, you know, that Sony camera is cheap. Oh, that Panasonic camera can do amazing stuff or the DSLRs are Canon. How does that affect how you approach a project? Um, I think it's important to know the tech that exists out there and the various gradations of quality, right? Like it's, you know, like it, it's, it's one thing to, to be working in clothing retail um, and saying, well, I want to shoot my first feature with an Alexa. Um, good luck with that, right? Like, like, how, like how, how are you going to pay for that and why, right? Like, why do you want to shoot with that? Tell me, what, tell me why that sensor. The truth is, for me, I think for most of the stuff that I was working on, again, because I have a creative, a creative job, like I, 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 I do a lot of corporate work and I do, you know, do some commercials and, I do, and, and, and I'm also very lucky to be doing a lot of um, film-related work for IDEA, which is a design and innovation firm. Um, and you've worked with them for a very long time. Very long time with my husband. Um, we both freelanced for them and he went full-time. I did not because if, if I did take a full-time position anywhere, I'd never make a movie again. Um, yeah. You know, that's just the truth. Which um, is a corollary to what we were talking about before, about making sure that what you do for money is creative. Mm-hmm. There's a balance that you have to strike, because I've seen a lot of people fall into that, too. Like clockwork, every film friend I've had that goes for a non-creative job, they start by saying, like, no, this is my, this is my ticket to making that movie. And, like, two years later, they just kind of get it beaten out of them. They're like, eh, that was a pipe dream. I'm like, well, who, who tricked you to think it was a pipe dream? Yeah. You know, and I think that's what a lot of corporate work does. I think a lot of corporate work is really good at brainwashing people into believing that's all they have. You know, yeah. it's like they're being stockholmed by abusive partners. You know, that's what these corporate <laughs> jobs are. You know, that, that, that's why I like dipping in and out of them. I'm, not, I'm a non-monogamous corporate fucker. <laughs> well, what's the line from Showgirls? Like, first you get them used to the money, then you make them swallow. Oh, God, we could talk about Showgirls for the rest of this if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm OK with that. Anyway, oh, wait, do, do you mind if I back up? Because I, th- I think I, I gave myself a tangent and I didn't I totally didn't answer your question. Yeah. When you when you look at the gradations of quality, like between cameras and like the kind of lighting packages you get, 
Like, you, you know what you can get away with. You know what I mean? Like, it's you can't always strive for the best, especially if you don't have enough money. And there's never enough money. There's never going to be enough money for what you want. Um, I, for the first film that I, I did, which I did not direct, Richard Wong directed Colm of the Musical, and I wrote the screenplay, uh, composed the music and lyrics, and I starred in it. You know, we, Richard Wong and I, we both went to film school and we were like the nerdiest of the film nerds. We were like such cinetechs, you know, like we were like just on top of everything. Guess what? We shot that with a DVX 100. <laughs> we shot Colmo mm-hmm. with, in, in DV. And this was in 2005 when we shot this. There were HD cameras ready. We just didn't have the money. So yeah. the truth is we're like, well, we, we believe in this script and we believe in the songs and we believe in all the people. All, all, the, all the people who are involved with this just believe in this too. We have $15,000. <laughs> that couldn't get it's you a incredible. Youth. Yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those things where it's like once you say I'm going to work with this, this much money and put the story first, put your concept and your content first, then you'll do whatever it takes to make sure it feels like it costs more than $15,000. You know what I mean? Like, so, you know, when people hear that we did a $15,000 musical, I think a lot of people just kind of assume that it looks like a high school production. And who knows? Maybe it does by, by some super amazing high school standards. But um, it, it does not. We, it looks fantastic. And anyone who has not seen Calm of the Musical should go see it. Thank you. Um, and Rich, I hope you're listening to this because you should hear that. One thing I think <laughs> that like really like got people during the festival run was a it just it sounded kind of corny, right? And then people walk in and like within like the first like 15 minutes, like wait a minute, there are two musical numbers that are back to back, separated by a few lines of dialogue, but the entire time it was a single take, you know. And that's yeah. the kind of like cinema nerd stuff that you should try to do when you have when 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 you only have fifteen thousand dollars to work with because it doesn't cost money to come up with a concept. And so I feel like that's the same thing that happened with Fruit Fly. That's the same thing with ha- what happened with my the second film I directed, I Am a Ghost. Like all my films are super cheap. You might as well make up for it with story and content. Yeah, and prep. I mean, you guys prepped that a lot. Oh yeah, Are you, that took two days. I think a lot of people watch that like seven minute sec- sequence and they're like. Oh, that probably took you hours. I'm like, yeah, try 48. <laughs> you know, wow. that's just how much work. You know, time is currency too, right? That's how much time and 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 effort goes into making something, quote unquote, impressive. Always be impressive when you're making a movie. Step back and and ask yourself, does this does this look and feel like a movie? You know? Yeah. Um, regardless of what you shot with. I keep pointing out Tangerine that was shot with an iPhone. That feels like a movie. iPhone with that anamorphic lens attached. I mean, for sure. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Let's take several steps back. Tell everybody where you grew up and and what made you get into movies. Uh, I grew up here in San Francisco. Um, I'm actually living in the mission where I grew up. I think wow david you're the first person to ask this this is crazy oh stop yeah, it yeah no it's like let's see that um not true i'm sure every goddamn interviewer is just like so where'd you grow up no i really mean it like i think i often get like the where you're from where'd you grow up but how'd you get into film i've never had that question never oh, okay yeah 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 well now i want to know my father was one of those dads that kind of disappeared once in a while um he just you know he, he had like Honey pots everywhere, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and he would disappear for a while and go gamble. And his way of making it up to everybody in the family is by coming back with a bunch of gifts. And one year he came back with a Super 8 camera. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't know. I, I assumed it worked like VHS, you know, because I'd already been playing with VHS cameras at this point. I think it was five. And um, 
yeah, the Super 8 camera was kind of like the first taste of what filmmaking would be because, of course, the first thing I did was not a movie. The first thing I did was try to make a motion simulator. So I took the camera and I kind of like like made it fly around the house, you know, for three, three minutes and 18 seconds. And then I would get it developed and then I'd project it for my family and they'd watch it and I'd be behind them moving the couch around <laughs> like being a motion simulator. That's amazing. <laughs> no, but that's interesting because you're looking now at the experiential aspect of cinema. Right. Not necessarily narrative aspect of cinema, which and that's interesting because that kind of does go through all of your work, because it's not that you're just a filmmaker. You're also a prolific musician and you've worked on these installations and these performance things uh, with lighting. And you also created that experiential game for the museum. Oh, yeah. Super, super museum hunt. Yeah. One of the most interesting things about you and your work is that it's not just film. Right. You know, you're a film nerd and you're a tech nerd for film, but... Like, you you could easily just be interviewed just on the basis of your music alone. Yeah, I, I, I thank you for saying that. I, uh, I I always wonder how people know me. I used to think that I shot myself in the foot by having done Coma the Musical first with Richard Wong, and then what my maiden voyage into directing films was Fruit Fly, another musical, right? And I didn't know if that if, if that would make it so that way people would expect music from me all the time. Well, you, you shifted a great deal with your second directed movie, I'll tell you. That was kind of on purpose, right? Like... It's, I think after Fruit Fly, I don't, I don't know what came over me. I, I, I was like, hey, I, I'm much more than the music guy. Stop calling me the musical guy. Um, <laughs> which, you know, which is funny because like now, like how many years later, I'm like, fine, call me the musical guy. I kind of love it. <laughs> but yeah, I, I do think, you know, you know what's interesting is I, t- I was talking to, I, I, this is like when I dropped out of school, when I dropped out of college. I remember I dropped out of college because uh, my mother had a, a brain tumor and I had to, to um, spend some, my, some time with my family taking care of her. And um, I remember running into my film professor again sometime after my mom had recovered. And I remember he asked me how I was doing and I just kind of ran some, some other ideas past him. And he made a comment. He, um, Dick Williamson is his name. He made a comment. He says, these sound a lot more mature than the ideas that you were working through and workshopping when you were in school. He says, but, you know, this is, this is interesting. I feel like you've aged a lot. And I don't know if it was because of my mother's condition and having to, you know, step up to the plate with my family and help take care of her. But I remember I said this to, uh, to Dick Williams and I said, yeah, you know, what's interesting is I think I started taking film seriously when I stopped taking it so seriously. You know, I, I, think, I, mm-hmm. I, I think I stopped being the film guy and I started kind of exploring all these other aspects of like my my creative self I guess you know like I was like well you know what I do love video games fuck it yeah I'm gonna talk about video games I'm gonna play every video game I can I love electronic music I love classical music and that's when I started you know playing with bands and you know just kind of exploring theater as well and musical theater and I I do think that um it's not like in every medium or that in every discipline I was exploring the same thing either. You know what I mean? I feel like really what it was was I was kind of building a tool set. I think everyone does that. I think everyone does that. But I think the problem with a lot of um, like creative disciplines is everyone says you're only supposed to have one. Yeah. You know, it's the reason why we all laughed when we found out Keanu Reeves had a, had a star called, had a band called Dog Star. You know. Yeah. Um, you know, and in hindsight, why did we laugh? <laughs> you know, like why do we think it's so interesting that Jim Carrey? is a painter right? Yeah. and takes it very, very seriously. Right. And, and you can see his videos where he's talking about the art and, and the craft of it. 
uh, on Vimeo. I remember seeing one, and he's like, you know, you, because he pops up, he's Jim Carrey, and it's like suddenly he's talking deadly serious about this stuff. And I'm like, is this performance art? Like, and then you see the pieces, I'm like, oh, wait, no, he's actually a, a, You're an, an actual artist. artist. Like, you know, a true artist. Right. Yeah. yeah you know, it's funny. Um, Frameline just played, just screened this film called Parade. It's great. And I, I, I hope, I hope it becomes is more. It, is it a feature? Uh, it's a short from 1972, I think. Okay. Um, anyway, it's footage. It's, uh, it's, it's very, it's, it's very raw. It's a very raw short film. And, um, it's of the very first pride parade. Oh. The director was at, at the Q and a, um, kind of bristling at the fact that he kept being referred to as this filmmaker because really he's just much more about his paintings now. He's like, you know, 80, mm. 80 something years old. And, uh, he actually said to the, uh, the moderator, he's like, you forgot to mention that I'm actually a painter. And I found that so <laughs> telling, like the words actually a painter. You can actually watch the Q&A, like Framelines actually hosting the recorded Q&A, because it's true. It's, it's, uh, I mean, I don't think I would ever say like, oh, actually, I'm not a musician. You know, I don't think I would do that. But in his case, he has spent more time painting than filmmaking, right? However, I feel like a lot of us in the filmmaking community, we just kind of get, get a little bit arrogant. We're like, no, we, we are all filmmakers and everything else you do is secondary. Do you feel like it's an orientation? An orientation. Hmm. Like you find yourself with one medium or another and maybe you're just poly. Right, yeah. So like on the Kinsey scale, I guess? Like, like, like is, is there like a, like a, a Kinsey metric for disciplines? It'd have to be a circle yeah. with lots of like points or something. <laughs> I think what's happening to me now that I'm in my 40s is, because I mean, think about Colma, I was 29. Wow. Now I'm, I'm, I'm looking back and I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunities I had. I mean, hell, Fruitfly, when Fruitfly came my way, and the Center for Asian American Media was like, we want to give you 25000 to make a movie. Again, I was like, you know, a little over 30 at that point. And I was like, oh, my God, this is more money than we had for Coma. And it's like 25000 right? Um, <laughs> but honestly, at that time, I was, I was also like, well, you know, if, if I'm given a chance to be an auteur and people already think that Colma was, you know, people had criticized Colma for either being too gay or too Filipino. I was like, wait till you see Fruit Fly. <laughs> like that is like the most Gaijin <laughs> thing I've ever ever done, and and I'm I'm gonna make it raunchy and like yes, it's a musical, but it's gonna sound like dance music and it's gonna sound like video games, um, and it was just a chance to have fun because there was a part of me that kind of felt like I'm not I'm not gonna take the twenty five thousand dollars and try to make Fanny and Alexander, you know, or try to, you know or try to make like Solaris. or ordinary people or ordinary people, right? Exactly. I'm like, why don't we just have some fun while. I have the chance to tell whatever I want. I don't think I have any reason to tell a story that's already been told. So I was shocked when Cam. You have a song where you get to sing about being a verse bottom. I love that people refer to it as the versatile bottom song. (laughs) (laughs) It is the moment in the song where you're like, wait, what? What did they just sing? What happened? Like, where's it? You know, it was a raunchy musical before, but it's like, wait, there are two guys and they're both singing about how they're verse bottoms. And that's okay, just is this that's, gonna work? that's just the launch that's just the launch pad like for, like the lyrics go on from there, um, <laughs> and I think one of my favorite things that uh, about the sing along the tenth anniversary screening is that uh, what what I didn't have access to ten years prior is I get to see people tweeting about it while they're watching and all I see are these tweets like what the fuck are these two guys singing about <laughs> like, wait. They're, wait, they're, now they're talking about prone masturbation. This is a, this is a musical. I'm like, yep, this is great. Yeah. It is a musical. Yeah. But it's but it's astounding what you were able to do with that money. I mean, like that is that is a drop in the bucket that it like I do not even know like 
how you could possibly make a movie for that little. And then after that, with your next film, which just blew me away when I saw it, and I just watched it again last night. I showed it to my boyfriend, who was completely freaked out, <laughs> which is amazing. It is literally, and I'm I'm not even saying this because I'm talking to you and you're a good friend of mine, it is literally one of the creepiest movies I've ever seen. Like, top 20 creepiest movies I have ever seen, and I have seen a lot of horror movies. <laughs> this is a movie called I Am a Ghost. It was made for, like, you know, some insanely low amount of money. And it manages to have at least one or two moments which scare the shit out of everybody. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I uh, I don't know what I love more, musicals or horror movies. There's actually an, uh, a Venn diagram out in social media land. There's a meme that shows one set of people that says people who love musicals and the other set of people is one who loves uh, those who love horror films. And the intersection is serial killers. <laughs> I was going to say the the intersection really is people who love cinema Um, because both of them, you know, musicals invent a reality that that don't exist in reality. I mean, you know, basically like unless you're doing once, which is, you know, all diegetic, all all diegetic meaning music within the film, like as in realistic, quote unquote, music. Right. Um, or, or cabaret technically is a diegetic it musical, technically is. but all of the other musicals create a reality where people can just break into song. And in horror movies, you know, there's horror in reality, of course, but you know, mostly it creates a universe designed to tell you a story to scare the crap out of you. These are not naturalistic films that you're making. Right. And I am a ghost, which I just want to talk about for a minute. The really notable thing about this movie is you have very few actors um, really, one, one. For, for all intents and purposes. And then you have this soundscape, which is incredibly creepy and disturbing, as this actor, this woman, figures out pretty early on, not really a spoiler, it's in the title, that she is a ghost and she's in this house. And she talks to the psychic that the family that lives there now has hired because there have been disturbances in the house. Some by her, but some not by her. And she begins to realize that she's not the only spirit in the house. And the other spirit that might be in the house is not very nice. (laughs) I was watching this film for the first time and I was like, this is all build up. This is creepy as hell. And it's all build up. There is no way that this movie can pay off the way it needs to pay off in order to actually pay for all of this creepiness. And the last 10 minutes of that film are truly like, white knuckle freak out horror oh thank you i appreciate that that's uh and thank you for sticking through it too <laughs> like it's i know I, I i do get that it, it's much like your film it's very it's, it's it's really unconventional right like it's it was really hard to sell people on the idea that i'm making this ghost movie and by the way no one's going to talk for the first half hour <laughs> and <laughs> I, I i don't think people realize that i meant that it was going to be damn near silent but it's, you know? it's so hypnotic. Thank you. And it, yeah, I mean, in the world of like, you know, kind of attention deficit, whatever, like, you know, yeah, you do have to kind of get through the first like 20 minutes. Yeah. I mean, you basically, because you're setting up a very slow, very kind of like structured reality that this woman's in. Then we learn that she's a ghost and she's repeating the same things over and over again, which were memories of hers. And then things start to change and shift. And by doing that, by having that slow buildup, the ending is just kaleidoscopically creepy and scary. Well, I think I Am a Ghost speaks to editors. Is, is that why I like it? I, I think I think that might be one of the reasons you like it. I think, uh, 
I, I came up with the idea of I am a ghost, like, I don't know, like, I think maybe, like, in college as well, but I just never went forward with it because I, I always wanted it to be that way, you know? Uh, and I don't want to say too much what that way is. If you see the movie, you'll know what I mean. The movie is a very specific way. It's, it's, it's kind of an homage to Bergman. It's kind of an homage to Bergman's persona, but it's all it's, it's altogether something just weird and new that came to me because I had a dream. <laughs> and and basically, when you when you have these weird weird ideas and you don't want to compromise, you have to accept the fact that people won't, might might not want to fund it. Mark and I did it with credit cards for $10,000. Oh, my God. And and then we raised some extra money on Kickstarter, you know? So I think, like, the final, like, number is something like 17500 17000 you know? So it's, <laughs> That's e- insane. it's even That's cheaper. Insane. Less than, than Freefly. Also, everybody was paid. How nice is that? You know, because there were so few people. <laughs> you know? It's, it's very much what a lot of the studios are saying they're looking for right now, which is contained horror, right? Um, yeah. And, and boy, that's... Pretty contained, one ghost in a house. But, but you know, a lot of those contained horror movies that you see in the movie theaters, the, the problem is exactly what I said. It's like they don't pay off. It's like two-thirds creepy, 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 and then the last third, like, oh, what, is that it? Yeah. The Lin Shea character would come in and say, like, you know, okay, so this is the deal with the demon, and I'm going to talk to you about the demon. And like, right. he's, you know, it's like basically a bastardization of Zelda Rubenstein's speech in Poltergeist. Right, exactly. You know, they, there's an evil spirit here, and he did this and that, and he's going to do this. And, and that was what I was going for with the the uh, medium and I'm a ghost. Like, I had, I remember what, being a huge fan of Poltergeist, of course, as a kid. And, you know, we all were, and we I know that movie like the back of my hand. And I've always thought to myself, can you imagine, like, what if Zelda Rubenstein, what if Tangina um, just... <laughs> didn't know what the fuck she was talking about. <laughs> you know, imagine if, no, cause that, that, hap- that I, I feel like, um, that happens for every other discipline. Like you hire a lawyer, they might be bad. You hire, you know, you hire a bookkeeper probably doesn't even know how to handle, handle your finances. Imagine hiring a psychic who probably doesn't even know she isn't psychic. She's just crazy. Right. <laughs> like, like imagine if you were in a really terrifying situation and you hire a psychic and she shows up at your doorstep and you're like, boy, you just do not feel reputable. <laughs> and and I remember thinking like, now that's something like that 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 could be super interesting because that would be terrifying to me. Do you want to know more about Outfest? Of course you do. You're listening to this podcast. Outfest is the only LGBTQIA arts, media, and entertainment nonprofit organization in the world whose programs empower artists, communities, and filmmakers alike to transform the world through their stories, while also supporting the entire life cycle of their career from outset to legacy. And what that means is, it is one of the largest LGBT film festivals in the world and one of the largest film festivals in North America. Also, Outfest has a tremendous number of programs for young filmmakers, as well as archivists preserving gay stories for all time. It is a truly outstanding organization. And especially right now, we would love your help. Please go to outfest.org and learn how you can become a member of this fantastic organization. soundtrack of a movie can make something feel 40 million dollars there's a yeah. a great movie um that yeah you know, i'm not gonna say it's like it's not the best independent film of the year but it was nominated for a cassavetti's award called conventioneers do you know about that it was uh, i heard of it yeah i haven't seen I, it. I love it it's a red state blue state love story it's like romeo and juliet and it's super super wry right i think like 
most of the people uh, on, on crew went to jail for that movie because it was shot guerrilla style. <laughs> and um, and the, the, one of my favorite things about the credits is it'll it'll it, it shows you a credit and it shows you how long they were arrested for, how long they were detained for. Oh wow! And um, because and, and I don't want to say why they had to do it guerrilla, but like I'll, let's just put it this way: you're I'm watching I'm watching the movie and I'm like, oh my god, I can feel the I can feel the cameraman about to get arrested. Um, but here's the thing, because of the nature of that movie, because of how it was shot, and it was shot, also shot with a DVX, right? Um, DVX, just so people don't know, it's it's a Panasonic mini DV camera that was very, very, very popular. Uh, when? Like around 2006, 2007, I think maybe? it might have been 2004, 2005. I, I have one. A lot of other filmmakers kind of of that era had, like bought it because this was the first camera that could do a true 24 frame a second emulation right. on mini DV video, right. which which really changed everything. Right. It, it made everything look so much more cinematic just by getting that frame rate right. Yeah. And then convention years went the extra step. And do you remember the Pro 35? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Shot with the Pro 35. We shot part of my movie with the, the, the PS Technic adapters. Yeah. Describe what that does. I think it's a super fascinating technology. What they would do is, because digital was too clean, there's this lens thing that you would put in front of your lens with a piece of spinning ground glass. Mm -hmm. And what this would do is that it would create the illusion that every pixel had kind of a random nature, which is kind of like what film looks like. Because film is just... You know, a piece of celluloid with a bunch of crystals sprayed on it that are photosensitive, and none of the crystals are always in the same place. So, which gives you that kind of flickery, kind of wondrous magic that you would, you know, see on film. But in digital, because every pixel is exactly where it is on the sensor, everything looked this. It looked kind of dead and kind of like too perfect right. in a way. And what this, what this spinning ground glass did was. Very subtle, you could barely tell, but it gave the illusion of kind of a shimmeriness, and it made it look like you shot it on 16 millimeter. Yeah. Now, conventioneers, they shot with a DVX 100, and they shot with a Pro 35, and they had everything it took to make what was essentially mini-DV look as good as it possibly can, and it still looked actually worse because of the nature of it like they're hiding from people to shoot this film right so how much time do you have to actually compose shots right well it's an unwieldy it's a huge attachment too it's unwieldy yeah. you have to turn it on because you need the spinning ground glass to spin so it has a motor on it so it's not like you're running around handheld with this thing and it and it's like you know, uh, a good idea. (laughs) If it goes out of alignment, then, you know, your whole shot is, you know, messed up. Yeah, and actually I saw a couple of independent films that came out around 2006, 2007 that were shot with the Pro 35 where they forgot to turn the ground glass spin on. Mm. The point I'm making with conventioneers is um, people criticized it for looking like a shit smear, you know? So Mm -hmm. really the filmmakers made made a really wise choice, which was, okay, you know what, let's kind of lean into this and just say, no, a lot of this is going to be handheld. And a lot of this is, you know, let's just be proud of the fact that we're kind of going against, this is like super, super gorilla. And when it's screened, you know, knowing all of this and I'm watching this, I feel like I'm watching an honest to goodness movie. You know, why? I mean, besides the fact that the acting and the script were great, it sounded like a real movie. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like sometimes mm-hmm. I feel like you can have a shitty looking movie, but if you have a gr- if you if you can make your actors sound like actors, make your movie sound like a movie, that's all you need. You know, I I I can think of so many movies that are favorites of mine that look like absolute shit, but they sound great, and you just, you don't even think about it. You're like, oh, okay, this is a this is a blockbuster. Well, I remember seeing Pie for the first time, Darren Aronofsky's first movie, which was shot on black and white reversal. Yeah. Film. And and it's I mean I mean you don't get much more gnarly looking than black and white reversal. Yeah. It's like it's it's incredibly contrasty. It's really like you know like home movie kind of stuff. But that soundtrack, high class 
super duper 5-1 amazing. And that kind of dichotomy between the soundtrack and the visual really made it something interesting. I agree. And you know what? I don't think it ever works the other way around. I agree. I've never, yeah. I've never seen a good looking film that sounds like shit. And I say that's that this'll do. <laughs> that's that's never yeah. passable to me. I've seen many independent films in which people have really focused on, you know, making sure their DP gets the shot, right? Um, and and then you watch it and you feel like the boom operator kind of is like in the sky somewhere. <laughs> and <laughs> and and right away I'm like, okay, this is the room. Or whatever this is, like this is. Oh no, the room. Oh. We're not going to talk about the room. We can't. We cannot go. Okay, so everyone knows, we could just talk about the room for the next like two hours. HP and I, I'm sure, have talked about the room for like hours and hours and hours. We would call each other up and like we would we would talk for hours. We would just like, I'm just going to say hi to HP, and we would just end up like you know four hours later, like you know. But the room would take up at least. A fair chunk of that. And we can have another chunk of that right now if you want. I'm down. I think that whatever audience I've managed to engender will probably send me death threats. Okay. Let's go back to Showgirls then. (laughs) (laughs) It is. That is the kind of yin and the yang, right? I mean, because Showgirls was a very expensive, completely intentional movie, which was interpreted as bad. And The Room is an unintentionally, hilariously incompetent bad movie. It's, It's They're very different flavors of bad movie. I find I find it very annoying that they're kind of lumped together. I really love the intentional bad movies, as you know. Yeah. You know, and Showgirls is, I mean, a very clearly intentional movie. He had Final Cut, he got the budget, he had everything he wanted to make that movie that way. Yeah. That was all intentional. Yeah, I, I, thank you for pointing out the distinction too, because it's important. I think if you are going to be an avid consumer of all things bad cinema, you have to know the different uh, distinctions. You do, you, know? like, you do. Uh, like, do you know? Um, I just bought the Blu-ray because I was, I was a Kickstarter of this, but they restored Manos: The Hands of Fate. Oh, wait a second! You told me about that forever ago. Did that finally it happen? Finally happened, and I received my Blu-ray. It's gorgeously <laughs> ugly. Um, <laughs> that movie, that bad. It's that beautifully it's bad. So movie. bad. I, I need to send you it's links to the, the stuff that's on mystery YouTube. science. It's the so, mystery science theater on Manos, the Hand of Fate, is actually hilarious. It is now. Now here's the thing. I, I hear you, and I've always had a crush on Joel Hodgson. <laughs> I, was, I was a big Misty. I went to the oh, I went to the Misty convention in '96. This does not surprise anyone. I know. I I'm a big think. nerd, nerdophile. That show meant the world to me so much that I was willing to move to Minneapolis, to Minnesota, to, to, to be an intern, uh, and I went to the convention. And I, I got to watch Manos, The Hands of Fate, with, like, 500 people in the theater. And, like, we all knew the quips. We all knew the words. And the interesting thing that happened was when I saw that there was a group of people who wanted to restore, lovingly restore Manos, The Hands of Fate from the original 60 millimeter negative, I was like, shut up and take my money. And I kicked it. <laughs> and when I got it, I watched it. And I'm sorry, it's it's actually funnier than when Mystery Science Theater does it. Because it's just so clear and, and so pristine. They had to truncate Manos the Hands of Fate to make it fit into the episode format. Right. That's how long Manos is. <laughs> like, you have no idea what's been cut out. It's worse than you think. So I, I'm going to <laughs> ship you a copy and I'll, you're going to watch it I with Craig. I will watch it with Craig. Yeah. Craig might not forgive me, but <laughs> speaking of which, um, let's talk about how it is that one can handle a relationship while being obsessive, introverted, and having a prolific, crazy 
output of creativity? Like, how does that work? How, first of all, where'd you meet Mark? Uh, and how does it all work? Tell me, tell, tell us all, like <laughs> give us inspiration. Okay, so I have to remember that's the anchor of this, of the question. So I don't forget to answer. No, cause I'm, <laughs> cause I'm, I'm going to end up talking about showgirls again, but, um, in, in 2006, the world premiere of Colma the Musical happened at the Kabuki Theater, the Sundance Kabuki here in San Francisco. And when I found out it was going to be screening in the big house, I flipped. I'm like, amazing, but scary. How are we going to get that theater full? No one's heard of us. And who would want to see a movie called Colma the Musical? For those who don't know, Colma is a town just five minutes south of San Francisco where we house all of our dead people. And and uh, and some middle class families. <laughs> and by the way, this was before the reviews, which were glowing. Oh yeah, we didn't know how people were going to react. Yeah, I mean, because when the when this movie was reviewed, I don't even know what it has on Rotten Tomatoes now, but it was like it was one of the best reviewed movies of that year, I think. It went down to ninety, um, which fine. God. <laughs> it's like, oh, the problems you uh, have. These are like, yeah, I don't even know what world problems these are. But um, <laughs> basically, I just was not confident that people would show up. So. I started hitting everyone up I know. Anyone I was friendly with, anyone I'd slept with, I was like, you know what? I'm going to go to gay.com, which uh, for you neophytes is what we had before Grindr. It was early Grindr, but not <laughs> but really. But not really, right? Because it was also community-based because, like, you know, like we all had, like, meetups at the Pilsner Bar. <laughs> so I had friends. I had lots of friends who were at gay.com. So I went there. And I formulated, I'll never forget, it took me two hours to formulate the wording for how I would get people to come to see this premiere of mine. And um, and Rich Wong was doing it with his family because he has a huge family in San Francisco. So like they were spreading their tendrils out and I was spreading my very minuscule ones in the gay community. I went to gay.com and I was just like, control V, control V, just pasting this to all the, all the different chat rooms that I would normally inhabit. Like, like I was a habitué of various rooms. We don't have to go into what those rooms are. But um, <laughs> and and one of the rooms that I would that I loved the most was gay gay one. Do you remember how that was, David? It was like gay one, gay two, gay three. I actually have to say I was never on gay.com. Oh. I was on other things, but I was not on gay.com. That was not something I was oh, on. Oh, that was my thing. And gay one was the one because that's where all the, the Pilsner crew went. And we all went to the same bar every night. And there was a guy in there I'd never seen before, and that was Mark DeLima. And I'm like, oh, he's kind of cute. Let me, let me control, control V him too. And uh, I, I, I totally spammed him. <laughs> and, and, and it basically says, so if you're interested, you know, come and check out this film. And, and I remember how it was. Like, you can see if the message was read. And he, and, and, and it showed that he read it and didn't respond. So I'm like, oh. Uh-huh. So I was kind of, I was a little sassy. I was like, huh. didn't he, didn't he know who you he were? He did not know. I didn't know who I was. And, <laughs> and so I, I, I typed, unless you're not interested. Aww. And Mark responded with, with oh wait are you real because he thought i might be a bot you know because you know that's just the way things were and are right so anyway fast forward to the actual screening and um you know i i i want to paint this picture the right way because i want people to know that i'm not full of myself i'm just paint i'm just telling you what happened imagine imagine (laughs) living in a suburb like Colma and finding out that there's a movie called Colma, of course you're going to go watch it, right? And then when you find out that that some guy from your high school shot in your high school, all those kids from the high school are going to come watch it too. So it's not like I was super famous or popular. People came because they were curious. So after the movie was done, after the Q&A is over, um, people were selling the soundtrack on CD right in front of the theater and there were all these teenagers surrounding me. 
And they all wanted me to sign their CDs because, of course, like they're like, "Whoa, there's a Filipino dude. He's Filipino, like like we are." And and he come he he went to high school at our. Please sign my CD, CD. And I was like, "Whoa, this is amazing! Holy crap! This is how how cool is this?" And I, and and you know, I was aware of the big fish that I was in whatever pond that was. But I I was standing next to my producer Paul Kolsonoff, and I saw Mark. In the distance, and I was like, I had like hearts in my eyes, and like, oh, that's the guy I'm chatting with, and he's like, dude, go get him. I'm like, I can't. I'm signing all these CDs, and I saw Mark try to come up and talk to me, and then I saw him chicken out and go back down the staircase, and I watched oh, no. him walk out of the kabuki onto the street, <gasps> and I was like, and I told, I turned to Paul and Rich. I'm like. Well, there goes Mark. I guess he didn't like the movie. And then I saw him turn right back around. He marched up the steps and literally was like shoving kids aside. And he he like pushed his way to me. And he was like, hi, I'm Mark. Start the relationship. Oh, my God. <laughs> adorable. This is so <laughs> adorable. This is like, this is like beyond adorable. I actually made a geeky little comic about it. And I'm remembering the anchor, the anchor of your question. I'm not going to, I'm not going to. The anchor was, how do you make it work? You sure you don't want to talk about showgirls? Did I love okay. showgirls, but I want to hear about your like because you are you just work so much. I mean, you make so much stuff; it's crazy. A lot of that is anxiety, I think. Like, and and I think it's you know, I'm I'm at a point in my life where I'm kind of like, eh, I'm gonna stop pretending that I, that I know how to operate without anxiety. <laughs> I just kind of embrace whatever anxiety I have, and I have to channel it somehow, right? And I'm lucky enough to have a husband who is the exact same way. When I met him, he was a mm. uh, he was an animator and a designer who was constantly working with assets that I, I, I knew quite well. Like, I, I remember he was working on a beer ad when I met him. And how interesting that we would end up, like, freelancing for IDEO at the same time, working on similar projects. And we had the same touch points. We were into the same things. We were both into Kubrick. We were both into Ingmar Bergman. We were both really into Stan Brakhage, right? Like, we just had the same touch points, same cinematic ones, right? I generally want to stick with a group of outcasts. You know what I mean? Uh, and I mean real outcasts. I'm not talking about like, you know, the, like the, the person who listens to Linkin Park and thinks that they're edgy. I'm talking about like, you know, the person who's like, hey, like I, I, I belong to several subcultures, but I don't quite fit in there either, you know? And Mark was definitely that. And he also has this anxiety of, of, of creating. He's just kind of, he was always constantly, constantly creating. Um, he's creating right now in the next room, for the record. Like he's, he's surrounded by post-its. Like that's just, that's his world right now. And I do feel like um, I'm going to give you a very small backstory. I was living in, was I in New York anymore? No, I was, I moved to Philadelphia and I was dating this guy who really, really, really believed that I had a future in human resources for Pathmark. And, um, Whoa. yeah, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and you know, he was a, he was a sweet enough guy, but he kind of hated every time I tried to do anything creative, you know? Mm. Um, like, why would you even do that? Like, you know, you're not Beyonce. You're not, you know, like, why would you do this? And I remember when I told him, look, I have a chance to turn Coleman the Musical, which was just a set of songs. It was a concept album to turn this into a movie. I'll never forget. He took me to the park and he said he gave me an ultimatum. He said, you know, you you have your whole life ahead of you. You could eat, you, you have a future in human resources. And I, I have to say, I don't know how how, how, how much I can stand behind this. It's it's Colma or me. Wow. So you know which route I took. I mean, you know, <laughs> there are a lot of creatives that have a similar story. Yeah, from people and they've people... been with, like you know, they don't. It, it's not that they don't get it or they don't want to just stand behind you. It's like fundamentally, it's like what you're doing is foolish, right. 
and you know either I feel neglected or not as important or I just don't believe that you're going to succeed. Yeah. And it's and, easy to trick people into believing that too. Well, because there's huge downward pressure for anybody to believe that. Mm-hmm. Like it just you know because certainly, you know, with human resources a pathmark which I'm going to now use as a metaphor because like, you know, yeah, you don't want to do that or do you want to do human resources a pathmark? I think that's <laughs> for so For the record, good. It's, it's because I was I, I was actually looking for, when I was 19, I was looking at a career in human resources at Circuit City because you know, wow. <laughs> longevity. That would that would have turned out well. <laughs> Right. No, that, that, that should be the phrase, right? Like, the, you know, like if, if yeah. you're happy with a, a career uh, in human resources at Pathmark, more power to you. But I think one of the things that the, the takeaways of all of this, like what we're talking about, is that there is a way to be a creative and make a living. It's just real hard. It is. But, but it's there. I mean, it's not impossible. Yeah, um, I you know, and I wish I could tell you that I found the the formula. You know, that I found the recipe. But I do think that a lot of uh, it, it took me decades to figure out exactly why maybe I can do what I do. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I've embraced how weird my existence is. And I, I know that sounds like, I'm weird. I'm so wacky. I don't mean that. I just mean like there are just certain things about my existence that I I made sure stay this weird. Like, you know, like, like, like being in a relationship that I have with Mark, with a creative, right? Someone who understands, someone who's not going to huff when we go two hours over schedule on a shoot. Do you know what I mean? Um, like, you you know, it's, 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 and and I know lots of filmmakers who have partners who do get huffy when like they, the shoot goes over because shoots go over, all shoots go over, you know? And, and that's like the most minuscule example of what I could think of. But like on a macro level, um, one thing that Mark and I always talk about is the agreement that when we make these movies, we're not doing it for money. Yeah. You shouldn't do it for money. You know, not, not these low budget indies, you know? And frankly, as long as we can keep with the creative work and do that, that gets the keeps the bread on the table, then right, we'll you know we'll burn that bridge when we get there. But for now, let's just let's just focus on output, focus on creating all the time. I don't want to go a single moment more without talking about Bitter Milk. Oh yeah, uh, which is which is the third movie you've directed and. It really is a quantum leap over the other two. Uh, not in quality, because I really love those other two, but in ambition, in tone, in scope. Um, and it was also still made for very, very little money. <laughs> but, you know, this is a really fascinating, twisty, interesting story. Yeah, it's a... Uh, I mean, it, it it is a lot more than I Am a Ghost. It's literally, like, ten times more. But, you know, that's not much. <laughs> 100,000 is not a lot. Like, and, it, it, and here I am saying I want to make this ensemble black comedy <laughs> with $100,000. But it's hard. I mean, you know, what you did tonally is really, like, fascinating and interesting. I mean, basically, it's the story of a Filipino family who has a, a son-slash-brother uh, who's a real freaking problem. Yeah. Uh, he's abusive and terrible. And it gets to the point where it's like, well, what are we going to do? And then somebody says, well, maybe we have to kill him. And then the movie starts going down a path that I don't even want to spoil. Thank you for that. And, I, and you know what I feel really confident about? And I don't, I'm, I'm normally not as confident about saying things about myself like this, but I will say, I don't think many people can figure out where, where, where it's going. Um, because I do think that even even with the humor, the very stylized humor that I like to put in everything that I write, and Bitter Melon is no exception. Even though it's a family drama, like it's still a pretty funny movie. Um, 
but because of how much it rings true for a lot of people, I think when the decision is made to kill the brother, I think most people, even myself, as I was writing this, I'm just like, how the hell is this family going to get out of this? You know? And the, the truth is I did, I did have the ending first before I wrote the rest of the story because uh, it's based on my actual family. Yeah. The ending is something else. I mean, you had given me this script, I want to say two or three years before I saw yeah. it. And I had forgotten the end. I was sitting there and I literally had forgotten the ending. And then that the ending happened and I was like, oh, right. Oh, my God. OK. And it's, you know, it's real rare that you have any movie, independent studio or otherwise, you know, that, that gives you that kind of an aha, oh, shit moment. And I think one of the things I can say about you and your work, I mean, especially Bitter Melon is, you know, that is one hell of an oh shit moment. Thank you. Yeah, and I, I uh, that says a lot because I kind of feel like I had a lot. You know, I, I, I was trying to bake a really good oh shit moment into I Am a Ghost. You know. Well, that that's a really good oh shit moment too. The last ten minutes of I Am a Ghost. I don't even remember when that happens. That the big moment, but it's like, oh man, that invaded my nightmare. Or or even the oh shit moment that happens just like fifteen minutes before that, like the staircase scene. You know. Yeah. You know, uh, which. Well, actually, that's what I was. Oh, talking oh okay. About. I thought you meant like yeah. <laughs> like no, no. I mean that other that other the the jump scare the the thing that is absolutely horrifying. Yeah, that that too. But but I'm thinking the of the staircase. staircase. The staircase. The staircase was the shot and and the moment in the movie that genuinely really really got under oh, my skin. I'm glad because we worked so hard on that. You know, we painted that frame by frame. Oh my god, because it's not a jump scare. It's a it's like it like like a lot of your movie like uh, that movie and we're back to talking about that movie. <laughs> but it's like it's like this slow thing and it's just this thing happens and that I did not expect <laughs> and it's not fast it's slow and it's really really creepy and terrifying well with bitter melon I feel like that's probably the riskiest thing I've done riskiest script I've written and just even risky to direct you know because we all know the, the problems in it aren't uh, aren't uncommon like we know people who live with toxic people you know yeah domestic um, abusers exactly yeah. and imagine what you did what what if imagine if the abused took the law into their own hands right like yeah. i feel like if you say that to somebody they start thinking like okay it's like a coen brothers movie it's like no but this is gonna be you know this is just come along for the ride i'm really glad bitter melon the process of making like writing developing shooting funding bitter melon was probably one of the most traumatic things for me you know, because I think for the most part, I had mastered, I had mastered the response to people who say, does this person have to be Asian or does this person have to be gay? I'd mastered that response. Now I was working underneath people who are either Asian or gay who were saying, does it have to be this morally dubious? You know, I think all of a sudden it became about like what the characters were doing. And I even entertained some, some some notes I got from producers like, you know, could you make it so that way it were more pleasant or, you know, could you make it more morally um, clear, right? Um, like, because moral ambiguity no one likes <laughs> in, in their dark comedies, which I think is stupid because that's what makes most, some of the darkest comedies dark. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I stuck to my guns. I do think now that when I think the the biggest compliment I get from people is... When people walk up to me after the film, they're like, you know, I walked in, it was a wild ride, it was super funny, and then I had no idea that by the end I'd be questioning, like, my own family. Like, on, on a very, very plain level, I was telling a story about my family, and, you know, they always say, you want to make something universal, write about yourself. And let me know 
what you can talk about and what's coming up next. Richard Wong and I are teaming up again because we're um, we're we're turning we're we're doing our best to <laughs> uh, work with tons of people to try to get Colma the Musical made into a TV series into an epic. Oh an, my an god, ep- that would be amazing! We've, uh, I, I we've made so many different Bibles. <laughs> like it's just you know, I mean, it's, it's it's so much time has passed that so many different people have their own idea of what a Colma series should be. You know, so. It, would you be in it? No way. Oh, you know what? Actually, I don't know why I said no way. Yeah, as as the, I was just going to say, you could play the same character just years Well, later. that's actually, interestingly, that's part of what I thought would be interesting. Imagine if you were watching a series, and after the seri- season finale, when the next season starts, suddenly it's like 20 years later. How cool would that be? Yeah. Work for David Lynch. Right? Exactly. See? <laughs> see? I just want to see you on screen more. Oh, you know what's so funny? My manager actually asked me if I'd be willing to make an actor's reel. Yeah, I'd do never it. thought about making because the truth is, look, every time I'm I'm on camera, it's as a favor to someone who's making a film who just like needed like some asshole. You know, he just like like <laughs> no, because look, I think I play a damn good asshole. Like I, I I've played a closeted guy. I've played a bigoted cop where I got to like like slap a woman across the face. Oh my god. Um, like I I guess I just have a, a way about me that just screams either asshole or bigot so um yeah i'm I'm having fun i'm gonna put together a reel of all about my biggest asshole moments (laughs) i played a homophobe i played a homophobic transphobe in one and like and and i i just feel like boy this reel is gonna paint like such an ugly picture of me and that actually excites me yeah well i mean you got the like you got the niche we we all need assholes in movies Not not necessarily assholes making movies, but we need assholes in movies. <laughs> right, exactly. And I'm more than happy to be that guy. One of the things I ask every guest that comes on here, um, without saying just make that movie or just do it, what advice would you give young up-and-coming filmmakers? Oh, boy. Let me think about this because just do it is so great, you know? I know. Everyone says just do it, and it always annoys me because whenever I heard it, I was just kind of like... Well, that's good if you have a trust fund or whatever, you know, but it's like if you're if you're just scraping by, like, just do it doesn't always work. Okay. Like emo- emotionally or practically. So what, what would you actually say? Well, here's say? the thing. Let, let, let's, let, let's dissect that a little bit because I'm in your camp. Um, I used to hate when people would say just do it, but of course it's coming from people who just finished making like a $10 million film, you know? And, right. uh, and I'm like, I'm late on rent. <laughs> like, how am I supposed to just do it? And... I, I I feel like the answer to me at that moment was still just do it because I think it's really easy to not do it. You can find any reason in the world to not make your film because the truth is when Colma the Musical was uh, this script with a, with a bunch of songs in it, a bunch of people were breaking it down and saying like, yeah, this is going to be about $500,000 and you know, because you want to do a musical number in a graveyard. And, you know, just think about that. You want, you want to have ghosts, the costuming alone. And, like, people are really good at, at, at making you believe that you don't have what it takes, you know? Same thing with Fruit Fly, I think. Uh, and, 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 again, like, if we look at, like, the movies I've done, uh, Rich and I did Colma for 15, Fruit Fly for 25, I Am a Ghost for 17, 5. Bitter Melon was 100, thanks to ABS-CBN, but at the same time, 100 still not that $10 million movie, right? You just make it happen. The show has to go on, and you find a way to just do it, as long as you embrace the fact that you have to do it. Like, imagine if I said, well, I guess we'll have to raise $490,000 then. We don't have enough to make Colma. We'd never, we would never have made Colma. Right. 
you know, and I just kind of feel like that this is this is a good kind of like coffee and cigarettes ending to our podcast, huh? Because like we're incorporating <laughs> we're incorporating everything we just talked about into this because like I do think it's important for you to know the tech. It's important for you to know the craft of how to make a movie so that way you can intelligently decide what is good enough or what you can get away with what you can get away with look i am a ghost i am happy that a lot of people have said such glowing things about its cinematography glowing things about the way it looks and feels but let's face it I, and sounds and sounds thank you um but let's face it i shot that movie with a canon 60d not even a 5d mark 3 i'm talking about a 799 dslr that with a decent sensor you know it wasn't even like the like the, the canon 5d it was the 60d and i chose that because it had a swivel screen now look if that was 2011 everything has a swivel screen now um even the sony's have uh, even the sony dslrs have them but at the time i was like look i know exactly what i want to do i want to shoot this myself and i know exactly how i want this to look so we had such control because we shot that at a bed and breakfast you know, like we just we, we could like just throw kinos out the window, you know, and just overexpose the shit out of everything and just make make use of the fact that the cannons, regardless of how low end you were working with, because the 60D was the lowest end at the time, still handled the blacks really well. Right. And so what you do, you just fucking I, I, I posted pictures of this on Instagram, just showing like before and after pictures. You just know your lights, you know, and I think the main thing I kept saying, like Mark and I agreed is we have a ton of lights. Let's light this so it doesn't look lit. You know what I mean? And, like, that doesn't cost anything. You know? <laughs> That's just, like, knowing where to place your lights. You know? And the, the interesting thing is I think a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, so you just use natural light. I'm like, dude, you have no idea. I Am A Ghost is so lit. You know? And, <laughs> and, and, and because of that, it kind of gave it... It, 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 it gave the, the intrinsically soft look of the Canon 60D Credence. Do you know what I mean? It's like no, this is mm-hmm. this is an intentional look. Now, what do you go? Where do you go from there? Okay, so it's soft. Why don't we make the costumes kind of soft? Why don't we make sure everything has a soft feel, kind of that picnic at Hanging Rock feel, but also the persona, the Bergman look. You know, we'll make sure that we'll get all of those like the good profile shots that kind of feel like you're watching scenes from a marriage. What do they all have in common? They're all kind of soft. But they were also all shot in the 70s, right? right. Um, or late 60s. Um, why don't we make that our aesthetic? And so I, every technique we used in that movie is not anything that would have been uncommon in 1975. Like I said, it would have been really easy to take that staircase scene. And I don't want to say too much, but let's just say someone has to look unnatural in the staircase scene. Mm-hmm. And, and we were like, well, how would that have been done? you would have done that by hand or you paint the actual person, right? Mm-hmm. We did it by hand. We did like literally I took the shot. I took the, the second half of that shot. Mark took the, the first half and we spent, I think like 12 hours straight, just like it's incredible rotoscoping and painting. And what that did was it kind of made the universe for us. It made this universe, but it was built out of necessity, you know, like, I think when I first wrote I Am a Ghost back in college, I had this idea that it would be this super modern looking film that's going to have the feel of a David Lynch movie, you know? Um, and, and you know what? From, from, from the rigid uh, constraints, we built an aesthetic and we managed to make that damn movie for 17.5. It's an unbelievable achievement. HP, you are inspiring beyond words. You are sweet. You are charming. You are amazing. Oh, this old thing. I cannot wait to see. <laughs> 
I cannot wait to see what you have next. And now I'm going to have to let you go because we've been talking forever and I know we could talk for another like three hours, but I'm sure that people want to listen to different podcasts. Go to the Showgirls podcast. Go to the Showgirls podcast. Yes, absolutely. So let me do my outro. Thank you so much, HP. Thank you so much for being on. Uh, This has been the Outcast presented by Outfest. For more, please go to outfest.org slash the Outcast. The Outcast is executive produced by Ismail El-Sharif and Alan Koningsberg. Special thanks to Damien Navarro and the entire Outfest team. Music by West One Music Group. For more information about Outfest, the film festival, the programs, and all the ways that you can help support LGBT voices, go to outfest.org. The Outcast is a production of Milton Ventures Media and Triple Fire Productions. I'm David Kittridge. Thank you so much for listening, and catch you next time.